Introducing Pocket Cast, the powerful podcasting platform recognized by Wired Magazine as the podcast app every iPhone user needs and by the New York Times as the favorite among podcast experts. Pocket Cast is beautifully designed, easy to use, and helps you quickly discover and enjoy your favorite podcasts with over 700,000 shows to choose from. Download the app, now free at pocketcast.com. This is the BBC. In Our Time is on its annual break, and we'll be back on the 13th of September. Until then, we're offering a podcast each Thursday, chosen from our archive of more than 800 editions, which I hope you'll enjoy. For news of our next season, you can follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. Have a good summer. Hello. In 1847, Jane Eyre was published, uh, with the author's name given as Curra Bell. It was the work of Charlotte Bronte, written at the Haworth, Haworth Parsonage in Yorkshire, and it brought her success and a fame that long outlived her short life. It's the story of an orphan brought up by a cruel aunt, then sent to the harsh Lowood School. From there, she becomes governess at Thornfield Hall for the ward Mr Rochester, uh, for the ward of Mr. Rochester and overcomes many obstacles in life and romance, including the fact that he's still married to a woman he keeps hidden away. Jane Eyre quickly became one of the most popular works in English fiction and remains popular for the strength of the main character Jane and the tightly bound themes of personal freedom, equality for women and the need for education and the role of religion. With me to discuss Jane Eyre are Dinah Birch, Professor of English Literature and Pro-Vice-Chancellor for Research at the University of Liverpool, Karen O'Brien, Vice Principal and Professor of English Literature at King's College London, and Sarah Lyons, Lecturer in Victorian Literature at the University of Kent. Diana Birch, what do we need to understand about Charlotte Bronte's family in her early life? Well, she was born in Yorkshire, a Yorkshire woman, um, in 1816. Um, she was the third of six children born into a happy and thriving family, remarkable parents, I think one thing we do need to know about is the extraordinary nature and career of her father, Patrick Bronte, who was Irish, born as the son of a poor farmer in County Down, who had worked his way to success and gentility as an Anglican clergyman through education. He had founded his own school at the age of 16, which I do think is a very remarkable thing. How many 16-year-olds do we know who could found their own school? He had then managed to get himself to Cambridge, where he had um, achieved very high academic honours and qualified um, himself to become a clergyman. He had taught. Education runs through his life as, as a theme and had then become perpetual curate, at Haworth. It is a, an, an exceptional story, and for Charlotte, he was a hero. Um, her mother, Maria, was a Cornish woman, devoted to her husband, Saucy Pat, she would call him. Um, there were six children. Um, there were, however, quite soon only four children. So Can Charlotte, we take that on? Because they went. He. he, he he, they were educated at home and they were educated yeah. by an aunt who took took the place of her mother who died when she was five. That's and right. And then they were sent to a, a school uh, which was um, for the daughters of clergymen uh, because, and it was very cheap and it was uh, 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 fairly cruel and... Uh, 
uh, a school that seemed to be uh, prone to uh, letting the children die. I mean, there were a lot of deaths there, and two of her sisters died, which had a big effect on that. Can you tell us a bit more about that, that school, which became Lowood School in the novel? Yes. Um, it was the clergy daughters' school. Um, four of, of Patrick's daughters were sent there. Um, um, in 1824, um, it was a very harsh regime. One of the main problems was that the children were underfed and there was very little medical care and, as you rightly say, um, there was a high death rate. It wasn't quite the monstrous establishment that we encounter in Lowood. Charlotte was there for ten months in all and she is drawing on childhood memory, um, heavily coloured, of course, by the loss of those two um, older sisters, Maria and Elizabeth. Um, <laughs> the depiction of the clergy daughters' school um, at Cowanbridge in Lancashire, in Jane Eyre, is really the one thing that no-one forgets. Whatever you remember about Jane Eyre, you will remember the burnt porridge. <laughs> um, the other thing that you are very unlikely to forget is the character of Mr Brocklehurst who established um, the, the, the um, 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 Lowood, but we also established Clergy Daughters School and, of course, presented in Jane Eyre as a perfect monster of hypocrisy and cruelty. He was founded on a man called William Carus Wilson and I think it really is the case that Charlotte Bronte was not entirely fair to William Carus Wilson in the way in which she projects the character of Mr Brocklehurst. But she doesn't have to be fair. She's writing a novel, is Exactly. She? You don't have to be fair when you're writing a novel. That's no. the deal. Yeah. OK, um, Karen O'Brien, what would, you, what would uh, Charlotte Bronte have been reading by the time she wrote Jane Eyre? She was reading Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. She was reading Byron. She was reading Scott. She was reading the Bible, Shakespeare, a great many other things besides. I think it's important to say, however, that in addition to her reading, she was also generating her own uh, kind of literary narratives. So famously in an early poem, Charlotte Bronte said that uh, of her and her sisters and her brother, we wove a web in childhood, a web of sunny air. So all of the things that she reads nourish and nurture this extraordinary collaboration between the four children in the fantasy writings that they developed uh, when they were very young uh, and in some ways kind of composed their own literary world together. I, it's fascinating that one of the books she... I, th I think she collaborated with Anne on was called Angria. Um, well, it's actually it's actually a fantasy world that she created more with her brother Bramwell than than, than, than with Anne, uh, and it's a it's a remote African country which is colonised by uh, the descendants of these um, these toy soldiers that uh, Patrick Bronte gave them. When they were little. The children seized on these toy soldiers. They gave them the names of public hero figures like the Duke of Wellington and his sons. Uh, and out of those toy soldiers, they created this fantasy country called Angria, which is set somewhere in Africa and is a scene of battles and epic struggles and seductions and all kinds of exciting adventures. Did her, did her father have a good library? I mean, was there, was there plenty for her to read? He had, a, he had a pretty good library and he very actively encouraged his children to read. He certainly encouraged them to, to read Wordsworth. We do know that Jane Austen wasn't on the shelves and it was only later in life that Charlotte Bronte came to Jane Austen and was rather disparaging about her. But he gave them full access to the range of literary heritage. Another thing I should mention that she was aware of because um, um, they had the book read to them was um, Samuel Richardson's novels, the not Pamela and Clarissa from the mid-18th century. I think 
were an important influence mm. because they're novels about uh, powerful aristocratic men who incarcerate and coerce young m- women into uh, either rape or into ultimately, in Pamela's case, into marriage. And I think that drama of the incarcerated woman and the powerful man is something that very much shaped Charlotte's early thinking. But having, having been a teacher and, and, and not like that and a governess for a while, not like that, she went to Belgium with her sister and uh, fell in love with a married man. And, uh, on the, and that could be said to be the basis of her first novel, which was unsuccessful, but it needs to be mentioned. She did. She fell in love with a man called Constantin Ege, who was a remarkable uh, teacher of English in this Belgian school where she worked, who was really interested in drawing the writer out of her. I think he was the first person that really, apart from her siblings, spotted that inner self and that inner flintiness energy and creativity that Charlotte had. That then became the basis for the first novel that she wrote. She initially called the novel The Master, in deference, I think, to Constantin's masterful character, but she renamed it The Professor and tried to get it published unsuccessfully in the 1840s. And it is the story uh, of uh, a man called William Crimsworth who becomes a teacher in Belgium. So the, the whole experience in Belgium is reprised uh, as a story of a man narrating in his own voice his experiences as a teacher. Was there any sense in which the failure of that book to get published jolted her? I'm going to write a book that gets published and does well. It absolutely did, because it was rejected, I think, nine times by various London publishers, and almost at the same time she starts writing Jane Eyre. There's something... But is uh, there a decision on her part? I read it in the notes of one of you that mm. she said, I'm going to write a book that it's, a lot of people buy, and indeed. this is it. It's a conscious And especially decision. as my, my sister's yes. got something published. And, and Charlotte, <laughs> like Jane, is a character who thrives on rejection and opposition, and there's something about that that catalyzed her into writing a more accessible book. And was, it, was, was, uh, was her sister's success uh, a goad as well? Her sister, uh, Emily's success. Well, they published a volume of poetry together, the three of them, for the first time adopting the pseudonyms of Cara Ellis and Acton Bell. They paid for the publication themselves and it was not successful. It was actually very disappointing in terms of sales. So by that time, Emily wasn't thought of as successful at all? No, no, indeed. I think think Charlotte was amazed by the calibre of her poetry. It's something that she came across quite late uh, and believed that Emily could be successful, but they weren't at that point successful. Sarah Lyons... Can you tell us about the principal characters of Jane? I said the f- three or four of them. Okay. Or half a dozen would be better, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, it's often said that you can almost summarise the plot of the novel by saying it's sort of Bluebeard meets Cinderella or married Cinderella, um, which captures some of the sort of fairy tale logic, if not accounting for the all of the, the narrative threads. Um, so Jane S begins as a kind of orphan who is growing up with her wealthy relatives who sort of treat her as an interloper in the family. Uh, She's bullied by her cousin John Reed and by her aunt Reed. Um, It then moves on to Lowood School where she, you know, encounters the sort of, you know, Mr Brocklehurst who, as was mentioned by Diana, is sort of this monster of hypocrisy, uh, basically terrorises the girls with a kind of fire and brimstone theology, though she meets at the school um, some more sympathetic figures, including Miss Temple and Helen Burns, who are both kind of um, figures who give her, I suppose, more positive um, role models in a way. Um, She then becomes a governess, at Thornfield Hall, um, where she meets the sort of the masterful Mr. Rochester, um, who is sort of, you know, this sort of mysteriously gloomy, Byronic character. Um, They sort of fall in love, though Jane is sort of disturbed by sort of these rather strange occurrences in the house, violent happenings, which she ascribes to um, the figure of the servant, Grace Poole. Um, 
at the altar when she's about to wed Mr. Rochester. Uh, a character named Richard Mason shows up with a solicitor announcing that, in fact, he is already married, um, that there is, um, uh, you know, to, to his sister, Bertha Mason, who is the, the, the mad woman in the attic, the incarcerated woman. Uh, we learn a little of her biography. Um, Jane, frightened that she's going to become Rochester's mistress, flees to the countryside, wanders destitute and hungry, um, where she is providentially saved, basically, by two sisters and a clergyman who then turn out to be her cousins in a kind of miraculous turn of events. Um, she inherits a fortune from her uncle, who is a wine merchant in Madeira. Um, the clergyman cousin, St John Rivers, proposes to her, um, but she rejects him because his offer of a kind of missionary marriage sort of pales by comparison to the passionate love she experienced with Rochester. Um, in a moment of telepathic communication, uh, Rochester says come to me Jane she returns to Thornfield to find that it's been burnt to the ground by Bertha who also died in the blaze having sort of flung herself from the top of Thornfield Hall um Jane and also Rochester has survived but he is maimed and and blind in one eye he duly sort of humbled and penitent at the end of the narrative he he and Jane reconcile and they, they basically live happily ever after so there's a and that was brilliant I think that's about 48,000 uh, people <laughs> taking exams who are going to listen to that again and again and again, and they'll have no problem, thanks to you. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was a tour de force. In, can you, um, in what way do, do Jaina and Rochester do or do they not represent romantic lovers? Well, in some ways, Rochester is more a vividly imagined example of a type than a wholly new character. I mean, as has already been mentioned a little bit, he's a, very much the archetype of a Byronic lover or Byronic hero, um, a sort of mysteriously sinful past, disillusioned with the world, glamorous, um, sort of given to sounding rather like Milton Satan in his kind of mo in some moments, but also sounding like this rather wonderfully self-ironising libertine at other moments. So there's an incredible playfulness to his um, language and he's sort of given to very extravagant metaphors. He's quite... I think something that's often not said about Rochester enough is that he's quite funny. Um, so he... That, in, in a sense, I would say he's a, 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 vivid, a vivid example of an archetype rather than, an, you know, an unconventional hero. And Jane? Jane... Jane is, in all kinds of ways, an innovative character. Um, the first thing is that she has this sort of potent and in some ways quite mysterious in its origin sense of self-worth, which is the keynote of her character, and I'm sure we'll talk about that more. Um, the other aspects of Jane that um, are remarkable, and certainly Bronte herself believed this, that creating a plain heroine was yes. was crucial. She emphasised that a lot, doesn't yes, she? Yes, it matters an enormous short deal. Short and plain. Short and plain. I'm going to create a heroine as short and plain as, or small as plain as myself. And that plainness, I mean, it doesn't register as simple unattractiveness in the novel because it's got these connotations of this kind of Puritan simplicity of dress and speech, which, and also a kind of unvarnished honesty of character, which is a hallmark of, of Jane too. But nonetheless, this idea of the way in which having a plain heroine complicates Jane's experience of romantic love throughout. You know, it's not a static detail of her character, but something that is really constitutive of, of all of her experience of, of part, romance. It's part of the key, part of the, key origin, the originality which keys through an awful lot of books. Diana, Diana Birch, what impact did Jane have, uh, Jane Eyre have when it was published? It was a huge success. 
Um, um, some critics had a few reservations about its fiery nature, that sense in which, as Elizabeth Rigby famously said, it, it seemed to represent a sort of ungodly um, discontent. But readers cared nothing for that. They thought it was wonderful. And you can see why it achieved that popularity, which indeed has endured. It is still a very popular novel. Mm. It has the thrills of the Gothic. Um, Karen's mentioned the importance of that 18th century precedent, which then translated into a Gothic idiom, which was very important to the Bronte siblings and is persistently there, those isolated houses, the gloomy context, the young woman in danger who is preyed upon by a series of very unpleasant men from John Reed through to Brocklehurst and in a different sense John Rivers. She is vulnerable, but she persists. It's full of incident. It's never dull. She moves from place to place, Gateshead, Lowood, Thornfield, Ferndean. So you have a kind of constantly changing scene. It's intensely emotional, also intellectual, it values the intellect, values thought, but it's also, I think, keenly aware of the world around the characters. There's a lot of weather in Jane Eyre. The landscape brilliantly evoked. The houses, very domestic in some ways. What people are eating, what people are wearing. You always have a pretty good idea of what Jane is wearing. You mentioned in terms of its reception uh, someone who was critical. Uh, and the, the criticism was rather based on the idea that she was too revolutionary yes. and too chartists were just going on or, and this wouldn't do, especially uh, as it turned out from a woman. But she had very strong supporters. Uh, yeah. the, among the, the greatest was Thackeray, yeah. whom she admired enormously. Yeah. So to be supported by her great hero must have been something. And it should be said that the balance of critical opinion was favourable. There were a few dissenting voices, but in general people did recognise um, the quality of Jane Eyre. Um, one of the things that I think did make it attractive at the time and since is that in Jane Eyre, every character, and we meet a good many characters, get exactly what he or she deserves. doesn't happen in life, but it does happen in Jane Eyre. That's why we and have fiction. Yeah, well, we don't always get it in <laughs> fiction, know, but we Please. do get it in Jane Eyre. <laughs> And it is a very gratifying thing for a reader. It's one of the reasons for its enduring success. Karen, Karen O'Brien, um, as has been mentioned by uh, Sarah, the, the, this, this self-possession, self-belief is very strong. And I think that must have been very attractive to any readers. I mean, I was very attracted to it. I, I read it when I was a young boy, but a young women at the time. Can you describe that in more, uh, more emphatically? Because it goes right through. She is very sure of her idea. She's very sure of her stance. I mean, as a 10-year-old, she berates the woman who's supposed to have brought her up and gives her, gives her a mouthful, as you would say, doesn't she? She stands up to Mrs Reed uh, and she says, speak, I must. Uh, and that sense of a, a hard, indomitable inner self that cannot be conquered and that actually thrives on resistance is there right from the beginning. So it's an innate characteristic in Jane Eyre. Uh, and you see it playing its way out in these various agonistic encounters that she has with Mr Brocklehurst and also with Rochester itself. So it's actually strengthened by that opposition. I think there's also, as part of that inner character, a burning sense of justice and injustice. And you get in the novel a lot of judicial and forensic metaphors and you almost get these mini trucks 
trial scenes during the course of the novel. And again, I think that idea that not only does she have a strong sense of self and what is owed to her as a woman and as a person, but she seeks to establish that in the wider community. She's a highly, highly passionate woman. She falls deeply and very erotically in love with Rochester. At the same time, there's a side to her nature, and you see this very much when she's sort of talking to herself in the narrative, that is very self-aware and that seeks to place some rational parameters around everything that she feels. So she's very afraid of becoming, in the way that Rochester clearly was when he was a young man, overtaken by obsession, by by emotion, by passion. And there's a, there's a voice inside her that contains and controls. So that famous moment when she decides that she's not going to become Mr Rochester's mistress, she is going to run away, you can say in some ways that's the conventional Jane Eyre who doesn't want to become a mistress if she can't become a wife. But it's also the side that says, I care for myself. Is there, can, do we have any idea... Diana's talked about... Uh, uh, a couple of the early critics. Do we have any idea what the popular readership saw? Was she particularly taken up by women? Do we know the readership? Uh, the, uh, have we any evidence of that? We know the readership, and I think in gender terms it was probably more mixed than it is today, mm. so that she was... Thackeray was very complimentary about her, mm. so was Scott. A number of uh, reviewers obviously were speculating about whether she was a woman or not, uh, and a number of reviewers were concerned that if she were a woman there's something kind of slightly coarse and risque and dangerous about the novel. But I think it's I think it was a balanced readership, and I think uh, she struck a huge chord with all writers and readers who were interested in that defiant autobiographical voice. Remember that the subtitle of Jane Eyre is Jane Eyre, an autobiography. Yeah. Mm. But as Diana mentioned, it was hugely popular. I mean, it, quite soon she was able to set up as an independent novelist, uh, getting on with what you wanted to do is write more novels. She was, and I think she got £500 in total from her publisher for that first novel, and she, after a short while, declared herself to her publisher, and he tried to take around London parties incognito, and she was introduced to Thackeray and various others. But that kind of fame didn't sit very easily with her. Right. The, so we have Sarah Lyons, we have we have the realism. Lowood is heightened realism, whatever it might be, still realism, really mm. enough to make you think, thank goodness, anyway, all that stuff. But there's also the fantastical elements. There are dreams, there are visions. Was that a ghost? Did he call to me in the middle of the night? Should I go there? Should I flee the home? All that sort of thing. Can you bring those two together? Yeah. Well, I mean, sort of picking up on, on what Diana was saying a little bit about the kind of fi- almost fairy tale gratifications of the narrative, the wish fulfillment dimensions where the people Jane hates get punished, Jane herself gets what she wants, although what she wants is rather complex. Um, you know, the extraordinary power of the novel, I think, is often rightly attributed to the way in which Bronte has kind of braided together the realistic and, and the fantastical or the realism and romance, we might say, or realism and gothic romance. And the reason that has such power is because it shows how real Victorian social realities, whether it's the miseries of school or feeling like an outsider in the family or govern, the drudgery of governessing and so on, might be experienced as gothic nightmare or as fairy tale. You know, this is clearest in the midsection of the novel where Jane persistently, and as does Rochester, in fact, speaks of her experience of falling in love with him as this sort of unreal or fairy tale experience, precisely because she experiences the sort of the, the social elevation is this kind of, you know, vertiginous feeling, you know, that how how can I, I mean, a governess, be sort of in this position to be marrying this glamorous aristocrat and so on. And all the way through this sort of... Um, the the, uh, the fantastical dimensions of Victorian social realities are sort of, um, I think, you know, is, is really key to the novel's power and why it has a sort of... Um, 
enduring sort of realistic value as well as a sort of, you know, a mere kind of fairy tale quality. It's an, it's an, it's an immense gear shift, but you, we go along with the poly, I think, because it's so grounded in a reality we can sympathise with because of the reality and the opening of the novel. But then we're talking about dreams coming in the night, messages from her mother, her dead mother, uh, and, and on it goes. So it's very... That comes in and we just take it as part of... What is that? We don't say, oh, I've stopped believing in this. Well, the strange aspect of the, you know, because it has this, I think in some ways, almost aggressive eye voice, and yet people don't tend to experience the, the eye narration as claustrophobic. We go along with it for some reason. We're seduced by it. Although, you know, notably some people, like, for example, Virginia Woolf kind of bristled at the intensity of that eye voice. Um, and I think that's also why um, the interpenetration of the, the realistic and the romantic in the novel has this persuasive force too. That there's no way to stand outside Jane. There's no room for ironic distance or questioning her. We, we, you know, we love what she, who she loves and hate her. She hates all the way through. And she also has a kind of rationality in her too although she's prone to certain kinds of hallucinations and visions that's also i think what makes or, or it gives a kind of persuasive force to, to the more extreme or, or fanciful elements also the interior thinking has a strong poetic quality she's bringing into yes. her prose m- m- her ways of ways of talking about life which have been not not necessarily or very rarely in my in, in my reading very rarely in prose to that extent so yes. I'm, Dinah, the relationship between Jane uh, and Mr. Rochester. Um, first time she meets him, he falls off his horse. Um, he dresses up as a woman sometimes. Uh, well, not sometimes, once or once. But, 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 but he's a, can be a comic figure. Uh, he's rather unfortunate. Um, she's very tentative at first. Can you tell us how that developed into such a powerful and um, long-lasting and memorable love affair? It's a very double and complex relationship because on the one hand, there is Rochester who has the power, has the wealth, he's the employer, and he is dark, strong and stern in that Byronic model that Karen was mentioning. So it looks as though you're in a very conventional masculine power, feminine vulnerability um, structure. But from the very first, it's clear that you are not because, as you've mentioned, the first thing that Rochester does when he encounters Jane after a rather fairy story entrance on his dark horse with his giant hound in the twilight he tumbles off his horse hurts himself and has to be rescued Jane manages him she redeems him she brings him back to life as of course he does her so as that relationship moves through you see a kind of balancing taking place and when after the fire the great fire at thornfield in in which um, rochester's first wife is killed rochester emerges as this maimed and damaged creature he loses a hand and is of course blind jane then returns to him and they have a relationship in which that power balance, which has always been there in the novel, is resolved in both physical and indeed financial terms because at that point in the novel, Jane has achieved her financial independence. So it's a complex business. But going back to the point that that, that Karen touched on earlier, the eroticism of the novel, which I think is immensely powerful, 
for and is part of its appeal. Not that I'm suggesting that it's a Victorian Fifty Shades of Grey. But <laughs> no, nobody's thought you were, Diana, really, no. I can assure you. Yeah. <gasps> but there is an erotic drive and yeah. a charge in the novel and it, I think it does have to do with that sharing of vulnerability and power in a kind of shifting power relationship. Jane calls Rochester Master, the, the first title of her first novel. She persistently calls um, Rochester Master, and yet there is a sense in which she achieves mastery of him. And she, he says at one point, you master me because you seem to submit. Karen, Karen O'Brien, in her early work... Uh, there's a male narrative, the professor, and then in Jane Eyre, she tells the story. Uh, and that was... Um, Sarah's talked a little about this. Can you develop the power that that gives to the novel? You're absolutely right. All of uh, Charlotte Bronte's early experiments are with male narrative voices. So this is a dramatic transformation. Um, it's important to remember that this is a narrator who's narrating from, uh, at the age of around 30, looking back. Nevertheless, the narrator takes us through this compelling story without disclosing any of the secrets so that we're embedded in the narrative and, and there's no hint, actually, that um, who the, the true mad woman in the attic is going to turn out to be. There is a clear sense, I think, in the early part of the novel of a difference between an older woman looking back and a child uh, trapped in this terrible world of Lowood School um, in the early part of the novel. But as she goes through, uh, this narrative voice develops and develops this kind of strength and this ability to absorb us entirely in the narrative. Having said that, I think it's important to say that there are other narrators in the novel. Rochester himself on at least two very substantial occasions, gets to tell his story so that we're allowed to see his narrative of his early life and then later on he explains to Jane what happened in the Thornfield fire. So we're allowed to juxtapose one kind of narrator who is searingly honest and self-aware in the, in the form of Jane Eyre and another kind of narrator who's a little bit more playful, uh, has an emerging sense of maturity and redemption, uh, but nevertheless is not as fully self-aware and that's Rochester. Sarah Lyons, Bertha Mason, the uh, the uh, rather surprising called the woman, the mad woman in the attic, is uh, Rogers has married her uh, for her wealth. He he was saying the son he wouldn't inherit the estate, um, and the idea that she's presented as being deranged, somebody to be kept away, somebody as a complete disturbance, and she's painted uh, very. Uh, I was going to say black. Let's keep that word. Mm. Uh, uh, in all sorts of ways, because an imperialistic uh, colonial thing enters into it and so on. It, some people think that uh, uh, Charlotte Bronte has been very cunning in trying to make her as um, not only frightening as a woman, but as terrible as a person, mm. so that it'll be easier for Jane Hare to sort of uh, marry, uh, uh, accept marrying her husband. Yeah, um, I mean, certainly I think that there is the logic that uh, Bertha must be unredeemable so that Rochester may be redeemable. Um, she's really a wholly demonised figure in the novel, yeah. um, a sort of a gothic figure of gothic monstrosity. And in fact, it's actually quite hard to form a, a clear picture of Bertha in some ways because the novel just invokes so many kind of you know terms for her. She's a, a vampire, a goblin, a hyena, a dog, a bird of prey. It's just this sort of zoological list of monstrosity, basically. Um, also often referred to simply as an it, as if she you know didn't uh, sort of somehow passed beyond gendered pronouns. Um, so the novel, I think, works very hard to make sure that no readerly sympathy can stray toward Bertha, although Jane does have a moment where she 
questions Rochester's lack of sympathy. It's a very brief moment, though. Um, and although Bertha's given a biography, of, she's not really given a, a psychology that we can enter into It's because it's organised around a set of contradictions. She's both... The, the, and I think these contradictions are actually quite purposeful. They're trying to prevent readerly identification with her. So on the one hand, she seems to be to blame for her madness, the suggestion that it's an effect of her sort of monstrous sexual appetites and her alcoholism... Uh, so she needs to have induced the kind of you know derangement of her reason through you know through a sort of immorality. On the other hand, it's suggested that it's this congenital phenomenon um, passed down through her mother's line. So the sense that she is and isn't to blame for her madness is there, and also the the actual her actual interior life is very hard to get a sense of because on the one hand it's. Um, She's, it's, there's a suggestion she's um, in some way intellectually deficient. She's referred to as an intellectual pygmy. She's said to have um, and, and be an imbecile, but yep. No, I'm dying. I want to come Just in. Just following on yeah. from that, I mean, Bertha is everything that Jane is not. Yes. And yet they're curiously connected. Yes. Those animal metaphors that you mention in relation to Bertha recur particularly in the early stages of, of, of the novel, in descriptions of Jane. You know, she's a bad animal, she's a mad cat, she mm. is dangerous, she bites. Do you remember that yeah. scene where she bites jo um, John Reed, which kind of presages the biting yes. later in the novel? So on the one hand, they're absolutely opposed, but on the other hand, you can almost see Bertha as a dark shadow mm. of Jane herself. But can I, I didn't quite answer no. the question I asked, and probably it's the wrong question. So if mm. it's the wrong question, let's move on. But I'm going to ask it to you, Karen. Do you think that Jane Eyre wanted to make Bertha so terrible that anything Rochester did was OK? Um, in terms of the character, I don't. I think there is this kind of un unconscious desire to supplant the first Mrs. Rochester and to become the second. I think there's also a sense in which, for Jane Eyre herself, Bertha represents the dark underbelly of what Rochester himself is. So, uh, uh, you know, something that's out of control, something that's in in this 19th century way of thinking, contaminated by contact with the colonies and dirty money. Because remember, this novel is set back in the early 19th century in the slavery era. So, I think Jane Eyre um, is both afraid of what Bertha represents in terms of her own desires, but also actually in terms of what there might be lurking underneath Rochester's character. And the colonies, uh, Sarah Lyons, brings us into the, the, uh, there's a lot there really about mm. it, but, but just a couple of things. One is that there's this dark person from the Caribbean who is, as you yourself have said, a large animal. The other thing, large animal, the other thing is that uh, Jane has inheritance uh, comes from the colonies, from mm. investments that have been made over in the colonies. Now, these two things are weighing with certain critics today, mm. saying, now, does this give us a completely different view of, of what Jane Eyre is as a person or what Charlotte Bronte is up to as a novelist? What do you think? Absolutely. I think, uh, Karen's word, this sort of logic of, of contamination is, is the crucial way to understand it. Um, you can think of Jane Eyre as the novelist, this... Um, you know, kind of early example of what sometimes referred to as, as imperial gothic, where often the empire isn't directly represented but appears as a symptom in the metropole or appears as a kind of gothic haunting. or And all of the engagements with the... There is a kind of obliquity to all the engagements with um, colonialism as it goes on, but, but there are so many of them that they sort of start to add up. And, you know, this is partly what's compelled, you know, modern critics to... The, sorry, go ahead. Uh, 
Sorry, Karen. Yeah, well, well I, was just, I was just going to say, I, I, think, I think that the contamination idea, there's also a sort of a decontamination. Yes. So when the money finally comes to Jane, it's actually in English investments. We're told that rather oddly and rather explicitly. Uh, and I think this plays out in terms of the idea of a, a kind of geography where Jane herself is associated with the healthy heart, heart of England, with sticking to, to English values and, and English geographies. Uh, and Mr yes. Rochester offers her the chance to go to the south of France. And there's a sense of a hot geography that she's constantly repudiating. So there's a sense of, of, I think, colonial contamination, but also of decontamination and then restitution, yes. restitution of the fortune to Jane and also to her her English cousins. And within the sort of um, lots of aspects of Jane that seem, you know, fairly like standard Gothic heroine aspects, her smallness, her paleness and so on, her almost ghostliness come to signify as a kind of... Pu- to Rochester, at least, is this kind of purifying Englishness by the end of the novel. But Diana, within the doubleness... I, can I just ask you, can we move on? Because there's, yeah. there's so much to discuss, and I don't want to miss out this religion. People, some people yeah. thought it was a very... She, it's a very religious point of view in the book, something anti-religious. What's your view on that? I do think it's a religious novel, um, but um, it um, demonstrates religion of a very particular kind. It's intensely hostile to religious hypocrisy. We've already mentioned Brocklehurst as an example of that. And it is hostile, too, to the notion of the institutional power of the church. It's a Protestant model of religious experience that we are offered in Jane Eyre, and it's closely allied to the old tradition of the spiritual (coughs) autobiography. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, an important novel to the children in the parsonage as they grew up, I think is a vivid presence in Jane Eyre, that journey, that pilgrimage through testing experiences. It's an inwardness of a relation with God. But it is a dynamic relationship which really guides Jane that she will be, and she says so explicitly at one point, she will be guided by the laws given by God and sanctioned by men. It's one of her motives for rejecting the prospect of becoming Rochester's mistress. But you could say, Karen O'Brien, at the, at, the, at the point, at the picture point where she is thinking of, of marrying uh, St. John and St. John and going to India, the voice of Rochester comes across the ether and says uh, uh, he's in trouble, uh, or, and she goes back to him. So that kind of love conquers religion. It does, uh, but also I think religion, the kind of religion that St. John Rivers embodies is, is, is a religion of total self-denial, a kind of brutal, ambitious denial of one's passion. This is her cousin, the, the brother of the two sisters who've taken is, her in. This yes. is the cousin, which she, the, the man she subsequently discovers is her cousin, who is this missionary who's characterised as cold to her hot. So I think the idea of a religious sensibility that's enabling, that allows you to flourish, is very important to Charlotte Bronte. The idea of a religious sensibility which is about self-denial uh, and trans- translates in that way into a sort of persecution of others is not attractive to her. It is worth remembering, I think that's absolutely right about St John Rivers, he's seen as, in a sense, one of the male tyrants. Mm. But the conclusion of the novel, its final page, which is odd, Mm. takes you back to St John Rivers and in a sense also reminds you of Helen Burns, someone we haven't mentioned, the the girl at at Lowood who had a kind of self-denial, which is parallel to St John Rivers. And also died in Jada's arms. Yes, yes, that's right. But St John Rivers has the final words in the novel 
Um, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. It's a biblical reference. And it's a curious echo of that moment where Rochester and Jane communicate. Mm. It's it's St John Rivers communicating with Jesus. And the final word of the novel is actually Jesus. Mm. So it's, it's, it's it's, it's such a double novel this. So on the one hand that very self-denying you might say life-denying model of religious experience offered by Rivers is rejected by Jane Eyre but on the other hand she concedes its power. Can we, is there more to say about the colonial uh, um, uh, pickup, particularly when we're thinking of Jean Rees's Wide Sargossa Sea, come out in 1966, which is a story of Bertha, really, yeah. uh, as it were, uh, an attempt to well, put that side of it. What did, what did that bring to studies of Jane Eyre? Well, it's a remarkable novel, not least because it's a rare instance where you have a kind of novel that's a, you know, a, a reworking of a prior text that actually in some ways almost seems to re-inhabit the first text and make you it's very hard once you've read Wise Sagasso Sea to expunge it from your experience of Jane Eyre. It's a very strong both imaginative and critical response to the novel um, and it, in particular in giving a voice to Bertha Mason and who's renamed Antoinette Crossway in that novel um, has I think you know it's it's in, alongside a very famous critical reading of the novel The Mad Woman in the Attic by uh, feminist critics from the 1970s, um, Susan Gilbert and... Uh, I'm going to say Sandra Gilbert and Susan Gilbert is the correct order, um, have both made the um, this sort of scapegoating of The Mad Woman in the Attic a really um, key part of our understanding. Um, Jean Rhys was herself... Um, from Dominica, and she identified with the figure of the white Creole woman. Um, and that novel really does, in some sense, give us almost a kind of Jane Eyre-like experience of the mad woman of the attic. We understand her experience of emotional privation and, and so on. But that um, spins, sorry, that yeah. spins it out into a wider, almost begins to be a global readership, partly because of the connections there, don't you agree? It does spin it out into a global readership and it's been reprised in so many ways. Uh, I'm very interested in the Jane Campion film from 1993, The Piano, mm. which is uh, a story of a woman who emigrates to New Zealand. Mm. And I think that idea of, of, of the colonial story, in this case of, of, a, of a woman displaced and, and courageous in an unfamiliar setting, um, is just part of that ongoing mm. global uh, transmission of Jane Eyre. Well, I can't I can't do this program. I mean, there's so much there's so much quotable in the book, but perhaps the most famous line is at the opening line of the final chapter. Reader, I married him. You've got very short time each of you to say how that strikes you as a sentence, starting with you. It's important that it's not the last line of the novel. It's the it's the first line of the concluding chapter. Uh, I think she gets away with it because there's a slightly ironic sense of romantic inevitability. It also shows us in charge. Uh, but what's exactly what's important is that I married him, not that we got married. It's also important that it begins, reader, I married him, because at this point you really do have a close and personal relation with Jane Eyre. You know, you are addressed as the reader. It's a triumphant moment. No one forgets it. And yes, it confirms you know Jane's status as the sort of Cinderella figure, the Victorian governess, made good. Well, I'm afraid we've got to go now. There's so much. There's another program. Oh, t- oh no, never mind. Thank you very much to Dinah Birch, Karen O'Brien, and Sarah Lyons. Next week we'll be talking about extremophiles and astrobiology. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. <laughs> I, wish, I wish we'd had time we to say, say something about the various adaptations oh, yeah, of film yeah. versions, yeah. which are so fascinating. Yeah. And mm-hmm. to talk about Turn the Screw in particular. Yeah, Orson Welles. Is yes, that was my first yeah. Rochester, Orson yeah. Welles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
And also but the thing the I always feel about those adaptations, and going back to, I think you you were talking about this, so how important it is that Jane is plain. Mm. And so few, you can see why, so few directors and producers have the courage they to don't, follow. That she's no, always, always pretty. She's always yeah. too pretty. It's like the librarian behind the glasses. Yes. It, and it's also, yeah, too, that yeah. Jane yeah. isn't there. But the novel really resists that ugly duckling logic of transformation, right? Jane doesn't get a makeover in the book. She remains sort of strangely loyal to her sort of plain governess. And if you have a tall Jane in a film, it won't do. Her tiny size. You can't see her anyway, so get around the plane. Casting directors, anybody the next film we're going to will you please call? Simon Tillotson, and he'll put you on to the contributors to this morning's programme, and they'll solve all your casting problems. Well, you can see why it's so tempting to have some gorgeous feminine mm. creature in the role, but it does make such a different and story. Two, and two handsome, I mean, Rochester, yeah. she's constantly telling him how yeah. old he is. Yes, yeah. and yeah. that's important. And we get these gorgeous yeah. men yeah. playing Rochester. Yeah. And he's not allowed to be tall either, no. below middle height. That means short. <laughs> Sort of Napoleonic, isn't it? Yeah. And one of, one of St John Rivers' problems, and Dee Brocklehurst is, is also in the same category. They're tall. It's a very bad thing. Bad to be tall? Yes. Mm-hmm. In Charlotte Bronte's fictional yes. world, it is bad to be tall. Do you think it's because she doesn't like to look up to anybody? She's redressing the balance. <laughs> she, she was very small. She's just redressing the balance. Yeah. She disapproves of anybody who seems too well fed as well, all the way yes. through all the novels. There's yes. this real sort of emphasis upon... Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it's all, a yeah. hunger theme is really strong yeah. in the novel and connected with the kind of... Room. One true, thing I liked about Lowood, which I hadn't, yeah. I hadn't remembered, yeah. I, when you read again much, I mean, oh, it's right, four, yeah. 40, 50, years before last time but I'd forgotten that she she does bring in the business of the bigger girls pinching the smaller yeah. girls mm. food yeah mm. so right. the little they had was, yeah. was much reduced yes, yes that's right it is heartbreaking yes that's that sort of strikes you more than anything doesn't right. it? so she's got yeah. this and then that's later right. she's yeah. started trying to yeah. eat this yeah. then a few paragraphs on she yeah. mentions that yeah. the, even the little they had was stolen that's, by the yeah, bigger girl but another thing we didn't have time to talk about was Roe Head where, of course, she spent much longer than she did at the clergy daughters' school, you know, run by Miss Waller and her three sisters, and that was really kind, quite a happy experience yeah. for her. She made lifetime friends, Ellen Nussie, the fiery Mary Taylor. is a very remarkable story in her own right, actually, Mary mm. Taylor's story. And there she at first acquired independence. She didn't much enjoy being a teacher there, but she taught there for more than three years. She earned her own yeah. money. And she did a lot of writing. Really and if you read the diary, you get the sense yeah. of the imaginative groundwork of Jane Eyre, where on the one hand she's kind of bemoaning teaching, and then on the other she's sort of going into this fantasy yeah. world. And yes. you see that she has that insight. What if I include the frame of the you know discontented teacher or the discontented governess? She was quite naughty, isn't it? Simon Tillerson is trying to get in here to to make his announcement. (laughs) In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillerson. It was twilight and Bailey was late. An extraordinary real-life story. The black woman in the South who raises sons, grandsons and nephews has her heartstrings tied to a hanging noose. The author Maya Angelou's memoirs on BBC Radio 4 across the coming year. I will be a conductorette. I will. Well, nothing beats a trial but a failure. Give it everything you got. Beginning with Maya Angelou, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Search for the amazing Maya Angelou wherever you get your podcasts. 
Want more from your podcast app? Graduate to Pocket Casts, your free one-stop shop for podcast listening, search, and discovery. The beautifully designed app gives you more control and makes it easier to discover and organize podcasts with powerful tools to customize listening. Hear all your favorite shows at pocketcast.com or find us in the Apple app or Google Play stores. <laughs>